Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Philippians 1.1 Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Little footnote, you're like, oh, the saints? Were the saints there? Did the saints go marching into Philippi? What's going on here? Now, remember, in Scripture, there, is this, there, there isn't this distinction between Christians as like some being Navy SEAL saints and deemed more holy than others because of a certain life of service or something. In Scripture, the word there, saints, Paul says, to all the saints, he's talking to believers. Those who were without Christ, sinners, but through Christ, have become saints by grace. So these are Christians. This is not some, there's not some upper echelon uh, in the church of those that are like, you know, you start as a believer, you become a volunteer at the church, maybe you become a deacon, then an elder, and then one day, if you follow Jesus long enough, you get to be knighted a saint. That doesn't exist in Scripture. There's no distinction like that. Now there are, look what it says though, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, notice this, with the bishops and the deacons. So to all the saints, we're all the same in the same boat here as sinners saved by the grace of Jesus, call sa- called saints through the grace of Jesus. But there are, he talks about here, these offices in the church that God calls some people to that exist to serve the mission of Christ and the body of Christ. You have bishops, which are also uh, called elders or pastors. And then you have these things called, or I shouldn't call them things, these people. These things called deacons. Uh, you have these, these people called deacons, and they lead the church by serving her. And so here, that's who Paul's writing to, this, this established church. It's where we're headed as a church, I think. Verse 2 says, here's the opening words that Paul has to say. Follow this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun or he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That you may prove the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Uh, This is the word of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for the gift of your word this morning. And that habit, that um, tradition of ours to declare gratitude to you for your word, it's meant to remind us of the amazing gift we have before us. Thank you, God. It, it shows us who you are. You're not a God who hides. You're not a, guy, a God who, who lives in the dark. But you're a God who has revealed yourself to us. You have made yourself known. You've given us your word. You have come to us in the person of your son, Jesus, who is the demonstration of your love, who is the word made flesh. And, and so, God, that is the purpose of why we're here today, to behold who you are in a fresh way to discover who you are and be changed by who you are. So, um, Holy Spirit, I offer the best efforts of my sermon to you, and I ask that you would now do your work. You'd help me get out of the way so that you could speak to us. We ask you to speak to us. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, uh, if you're taking notes there, I uh, got a sermon title for you. The title of the message today is The Horizontal Heart. The Horizontal Heart. Now, how fitting is it that today on Valentine's Day, a day where we celebrate love and hearts, how fitting is it that our text today leads us to to a study of the heart and love? It's just perfect. I, I love how this worked itself out. Literally, today's message, before I even realized it was Valentine's Day, is all about our heart and love. It's perfect. 
Uh, that's what we see here in this text. Um, you know, Scripture emphasizes the same connection that our culture makes between hearts and love. Today is the day of hearts and love. All over my house this morning for the kids was hearts and love. All week long with Evie at school, she got to wear a dress to her Valentine's Day party. It was covered in hearts. Of course, she's full of love. Uh, and so uh, just this, this cultural sort of celebration that, again, mirrors a connection Scripture makes that we see here in the life of Paul, the heart and love. Uh, in this passage, we see Paul expressing his own deep love and affection, that he, the, the love and affection that he has deep in his heart for the church at Philippi. Paul has like this fatherly heart towards this church, and he's expressing that. Even words that he uses there in verse 8, like, I have affection for you in Christ. And he says, I have you in my heart. Uh, what I would say about Paul in this passage is that Paul has a horizontal heart. And this is what I want to teach on today and kind of unpack and even use this text to explore a little bit more. Uh, but let's start right out the gate with a definition of what we see here with Paul and what we mean by this phrase, a horizontal heart. Go ahead and write this down. What is a horizontal heart modeled here by Paul? A horizontal heart is a heart that has been so impacted and transformed by the love of God in Christ that it begins to turn outward in display of that same love toward Others, a horizontal heart, a heart that has been so impacted by the love of God in Christ. Not just the mind that knows it intellectually, that can articulate the doctrines of grace theologically, but a heart that has been so truly impacted. I think of Romans 5, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that heart that's so impacted by this love in Christ it turns horizontal. It begins to turn outward in display of that very same love towards others. It starts to reflect it. Now, let's unpack a few uh, biblical theological concepts that are in this definition and in this idea and also here in this text. I think first what we want to point out is this idea of a transformed life. That's what we talk about here, a heart that's transformed. You know, last week we looked at the Apostle Paul as probably the greatest example in history of someone's life who was just radically transformed by Jesus. That's what we all want, amen? We all want to surrender our own course of life, and we, we want to allow Jesus to transform us towards what he has for our lives. And sometimes that's, that comes whether we want it or not. God has this grace that's strong enough to even interrupt our lives. As we saw in the life of the Apostle Paul, he was going his own way, and God in, uh, inter intervened and intersected his course to send him in a new direction and completely transformed Paul's life. How, how big is that transformation? Well, Paul went from his primary mission in life being to kill Christians and to destroy the church to his primary purpose in life being to lead people to be Christians and build up the church. I mean, talk about a transformation. But uh, if there's one thing that we are led to see in the life of Paul in regards to the transformation... I would say it's the depth of his transformation. The, the work that God did in Paul's life was not just merely a work of changing Paul's behavior. Right? The gospel doesn't come to us with this good advice about behavior modification. Okay? Here's how you're behaving. Okay? If you want to be in the club, welcome to the church club. If you want to get in it, you got to do these behaviors. you got to fix your behavior. you got to do things different. Now, certainly Scripture will speak to reaping and sowing. It speaks to a way and a rhythm. But we know the Apostle Paul has tried that before without Jesus. For a long time, Paul's whole life was just marked by good behavior, keeping the rules, doing the right thing. But in all of his rule-keeping, he still had the biggest obstacle to face, which was the hardness of his heart. It was the issue of his heart. That was the very thing that Jesus came to transform. That's what's at the root issue. In your life and in my life today, as you look at what's going on in your life, I just want you to stop for a second and just think about the nature of your heart. It's kind of a, a classic, corny, Christian bro question. But how's your heart, right? How's your heart, bro? we got to dust that off a little bit because I think Jesus would lead us to ask that question, sincerely. 
How's your heart? What's the nature of your heart? I'm not just asking if you're doing Christian things, but is there within your heart a love for God? Is there within your soul even a love for others? Now, Jesus taught this principle about um, the heart of the matter being the matter of the heart. Jesus taught on this. Uh, in Matthew 15, Jesus, he, he teaches and elaborates on this point. He says, uh, the things which proceed out of your mouth even, they come from your heart, and that's what defiles a man. So whatever's coming out of your mouth, is, Jesus says, is usually a revealer of what's deep down in your heart. That's the real issue. All right, if you have a speech issue, what you really have is a heart issue, right? So Jesus says that that's where it's coming from. He, he, he goes on to a couple other examples. In, in verse 19, he says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Murders. Isn't that interesting? Murder. What is it? It's a heart issue, Jesus says. Killing people? Heart issue. Adulteries. Fornications. Thefts. False witnesses. Blasphemies. All the different sins that flow from our life, all the brokenness that we face in our trajectory of life, it can be traced back to our hearts. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, which I would highly recommend you do, Matthew 5 through 7, you see Jesus gives his own master class on this concept. He'll talk about adultery actually being a heart issue, right? He'll talk about murder beginning in the heart with hate. So, so again, this is a biblical principle. It's not just Jesus. We know the Proverbs teach this too. It says in, in Proverbs 4.23, we all know this, this common scripture, right? Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs all the issues of life. Right now, if you're like, man, I got some issues in life, could it be that some of those issues could be traced back to your heart? Now, I'm not talking about the things we can't control, but I'm talking about you. I'm talking about where you're at, how's your heart. Um, this also isn't like a modern, new, um, novel New Testament concept. This was always God's heart from the very beginning. Um, from the very beginning, God, God didn't create man to be these like automatic robots, right? That do God's will. Yes, Lord, don't eat the tree, right? Like God created mankind with a free will because the highest ethic in life is love. So God even gave mankind a free will to love him voluntarily, that's the greatest act of love, to choose it for someone. And, and we saw, we, especially in our Minor Prophets series, but you see all throughout the history of God's people this tendency to move away from heart-level loving God and to just kind of reduce my relationship with God to rule-keeping. And God is constantly like calling Israel to think about their hearts, right? Like, take inventory, check stock in your heart. How are things? There's this great moment kind of in that that, you know, couple millennia conversation between God and Israel. There's a great moment in Ezekiel 36 where God makes this incredible promise about what he's going to do for his people when it comes to their heart. He says, I will give you, in that day where I come, he says, he makes a prophecy about making them clean. This is going to be through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. And God talks about a day where he will put Give, give us, give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Notice this, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. The idea there is tenderness. He goes on to say this, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Doing the right thing is important, but it's why you're doing it. Is it flowing from a place of a tender heart? This is what, what, what God promised through Ezekiel, and it's actually what Jesus came to bring about in our lives. Uh, Jesus elaborates on this exact principle of God causing us to follow him from a heart level, not just a behavioral level. Uh, this was, I talk about this a lot, like in my experience as a youth minister, but um, I always gravitated as a youth minister, I think, towards the kids that looked a lot like me. I don't mean like physically or like we're skateboarders sometimes, but like I gravitated towards the kids that were just like nonconformist, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to sit in the front. I'm going to sit in the back and make a point, you know? Like, I kind of gravitated towards that because there was something about that honesty that was like, you're wearing your heart on your sleeve. I like that. And, and that was my heart, hello, in youth ministry was to how do we capture a student's heart? Not just how do we get their behavior fixed. Because, I mean, this is just true of parenting, right? Isn't that the goal? I don't know about you. I always get lost as a parent in just, like, behavior stuff. Learning to slow down and shepherd. 
my children's hearts? Because then one day they're going to, you know, not have daddy there to be their guide. And what do I want for them? And I want them to have hearts that are soft enough for Jesus to lead them, right? So, so again, there's so many illustrations of this principle, the importance of this. Uh, Jesus really elaborates on this beautifully in Mark chapter 12. Notice this incredible dialogue. It says, one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that Jesus answered them well. So you have like kind of Q and R time, question and response time with Jesus, with some answers here. Not always the answers they're looking for, but it's like this guy's intelligent. This rabbi's a good teacher. He's got a big following. Let's probe him with some questions. And so this scribe comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what is the first commandment of all? What does God really want me to do? Maybe you're wondering that right now in life. God, what do you want me to do? What's like the most, I'm so confused. What do you want me to do? And Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. What does God want you to do? Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, notice this, like it, meaning it comes from the same source, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I love the, the way that this dialogue ends. Sometimes we cut it off, but it really ends beautifully. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. Imagine saying that to Jesus. Well said, Jesus. I, I, I approve of your statement. All right. <laughs> you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself notice this is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices you see it heart level the heart is the thing that God is concerned with because listen it's from the heart that we love the heart is the place from which we love now when Jesus saw that it says he saw that he had answered wisely I don't know what's going on here with all this other stuff but it's okay just right here Right here, check it out. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I love that. Jesus is like, you're on to something with this statement. You're, you're really close to the heart of God. You're really close to the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus came to do more than just teach about the heart. He came to be the means through which our hearts would be changed. He came to give himself as a display of love to work itself, to work his love into our hearts so personally so that we would be different, so that we would be changed. I, I referenced this verse earlier. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul saying this. So this is the guy that lived his own life going one way, living all the rules, but his heart being far from the truth of God and loving God. And this is Paul now after the fact. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's called being impacted by the love of God. This is what it looks like to move beyond what I can tell you about the love of God and actually saying that's true for me. I'm personalizing God's love for me. It's being poured out in my heart and what that leads me to do is to become a horizontal person with a horizontal heart. Uh, Jesus talked about kind of these two directions. God changes our heart, the place from which we love. He does that with his love. He says, first, so that I could love God. It's kind of this upward vertical response. John says that we love God because he first loved us. But then my heart also moves outward to others around me in this horizontal sense. That's what we see with Paul. We see that in his life. And it's important to remember, as Christians, especially followers of Jesus, we cannot have one without the other. Um, we, we cannot be those that are all jazzed up on loving others with no concern for loving God. I'm not saying they work against each other, but I am saying that one without the other is the absence of the Christian faith. We're just going to love people at all costs. As long as it's not costing us loving God. And there's a lot of implications to that. There's another side of that to where, listen, we can't be the 
most pious in the room, the most pious in the world who love, man, we, we are lovers of God here, man. We love him with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. All of it. We love him with all of us. All of all of us, we love him. And then John comes along, he says, okay, that's great. You say you love God, but if you hate your brother, then the truth of God actually isn't even in you. So, so we can't have one without the other, and, and certainly we can't have a love for God that doesn't translate in a horizontal sense um, towards love for others. So, so what we see there modeled with Paul in his heart is a principle taught all throughout the New Testament. This principle that for God's love to truly impact you means that you start loving others with that same love. It's, it's kind of scattered all throughout the New Testament. These are just some references on the importance of love and outward love flowing from us as those who have been changed by God. And, and there's some like heavy truths about this in Scripture. So when you read 1 Corinthians 13, what you see, just to kind of illustrate this point, uh, you see that love in 1 Corinthians 13, like an outward love towards others, loving my neighbor as myself. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that it's actually the defining mark of spiritual maturity. Now, in your mind right now, I want you to think about like, what comes to mind or who comes to mind when you think about spiritual maturity? And what makes them spiritually mature? It's likely, I have my own things too, it's likely that one or a few of those things are going to be listed in 1 Corinthians 1 through 7 with all these great like knowing all mysteries, all prophecies, all the, maybe you think of someone with like great faith and right, we know 1 Corinthians 13, by the way, it's like the Valentine's Day chapter. And when you read through it, you see you could do all these seemingly mature things before others in a way that is, is a show and is actually without love. And therefore, it's actually nothing. And then Paul goes on to talk about maturity is abiding in love. So, so spiritual maturity, what comes to our mind when we think of maturity? Is it knowledge? Is it faith? Is it gifting? Is it uh, charisma? From God's perspective, God looks at the heart. And his gauge for spiritual maturity is not how much you know, but how much you love. Spiritual maturity. It's also, according to Jesus, it's the key characteristic of our discipleship to him. Doesn't he say that in John 13? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's like, That's the, that is how people will know, okay? It's not your Jesus fish, all right? Just pro I took mine off. I had to take mine off years ago. I was like, that's not going to help anybody know Jesus, okay? If you know what I mean. Um, kind of drive in the spirit, you know. Um, but, it, but it's not any of these sort of religious things. It's not, these, it's not these cultural things that we tend to tack on. Oh, you're a Christian. The primary thing that people should sense, like, oh, you're a follower of Messiah Jesus, is you love like him. You remind me of him. Key characteristic of our discipleship. By this, all will know that you're my disciples. Your love. He says, especially for one another within the church. Galatians 5.22, we see that, that love is the primary fruit of walking in the Spirit. Now, we talked about spiritual maturity. I want you to think about who is the most Spirit-filled person you know. And what makes them Spirit-filled? Well, they are um, eccentric in worship. Okay? Passion's good. It's good. But is it that they love, right? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Isn't that interesting? According to Paul, the greatest evidence of you being filled with the Spirit is not how high you can jump. <laughs> it's how straight you can walk. It's how loving you are. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit is seeking to produce in our lives. Uh, and then lastly, this is probably the hardest one because of how, like, black and white John can be at the end of his life. He's just like, I'm speaking the truth. I don't care what anybody says. I'm about to die. Um, straight up, dude. And 1 John 4, 7 and 8, we see that love is the ultimate evidence of relationship with God. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And if anyone does not love, he does not know God. He says, for God is love. So, so how do I display that I actually know God? 
Not in what I say, but in how I love, okay? So we, we see this, man, that the horizontal dimension to how our hearts have been changed, to not just move upward in response to God, but to move outward in love towards others, it is a central piece of following Jesus. And Paul models it so well in this passage that we read. Uh, in this passage, as, as we look at this again, go back to Philippians 1, Paul gives us a couple keys of this horizontal heart that he has. Um, he gives us three key pieces of a horizontal heart. Is this not the best, most Valentine's message you've ever heard? These are the pieces of Paul's heart right here. Come on, all right? Key pieces of Paul's horizontal heart. We see that Paul has, what does this look like in our lives? If now that we understand that theological foundation, that God is taking us, always taking us towards love. Like, if there's any confusion today about where your life is headed and what God's doing, the primary thing that he's up to in your life is leading you to love him with all of you and leading to love others the same way, the same love he showed you. And the first thing we see with Paul having that horizontal heart is we see it displayed at this posture of love toward others. And it's just in the way that Paul greets this church. Um, greetings matter, you know. How you introduce yourself, how you, how you make that first impression, the first thing out of your mouth. It, it speaks to your posture towards someone. You know, if, if, if someone, if someone um, is kind of like high in your eyes, I imagine your posture towards them is not going to be like, what's up, man? How's it going? What's good? Yeah. What's good? How you doing? Everything good? All right. You're not going to have this sort of like half-hearted, weak posture. You're going to have this posture of, hello, nice to meet you. You're going to be very formidable, right? You're going to be thinking very hard, how's my hair? How's my teeth? How's my smile? All right? You're on guard. You got your best foot forward. You're, the person determines the posture. Notice Paul's posture as he uh, approaches and writes to this church. He says there in verse 2, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's posture, a posture of love towards others. It's a key characteristic of a horizontal heart, a heart that comes into a relationship as someone who is just living out and, and the grace and peace of God is just flowing out of their lives to those around them. That's interesting. Grace and peace. Now, this is a standard Pauline greeting. Any of Paul's letters that you read, you'll see him starting most of the time in this way. Grace and peace. You know, he could have just said, what's up, guys? How's it going, Philippians? And then just got into it. Imagine if he said that. To the saints who are in Christ, what's good? You know, verse 3, that would have been awesome. But instead, it's this intentional grace and peace. Now, there's a cultural thing going on there where Paul is bringing grace to the Gentile. That was a common Greek greeting, was karen. He subverts it and makes it charis, grace to you. And then peace to the Jew, the, the Jewish greeting of shalom here in the Greek, arene. Uh, Paul is speaking to everyone. But the substance of these two words are so important in Paul's posture. This is Paul's posture. Grace and peace. Grace, we know theologically as we study scripture, this is um, like if you're a Christian, you should probably be most familiar with this word, right? Grace. Grace has been easily defined as the unmerited, unearned, and unending favor of God over our lives through Christ. It's unearned. I don't work for God to love me. I just receive the fact that he does. And it's unending. There's no end to it. It's not like I sin my way out of it, right? Like there's a certain amount. I went to Chuck E. Cheese last week, and um, I probably should quarantine for nine years, but... Um, <laughs> controversial um but there's this like card they give you now they're trying to be all careful they don't you know they don't do tickets anymore um i'm trying to like be cool about it like it's fine it's a card you know and but there's a credit there's a certain amount a lot of us think about that when it comes to our relationship with god it's like we have a credit of grace right and it can only be used so many times when i sin eventually i get to the point where it's like zero balance and now, let me tell you what that, uh, what that is. That's called works. That's diametrically opposed to grace. A work is what earns you a wage. Grace is a gift. For the wages of sin, what we've earned, is, is death. 
But the gift of God, the grace of God, is the unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and unending favor of God. It's eternal life through Jesus. You can't outsend God's grace. You know what Paul says? He says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so it's inexhaustible. Grace, and I love that he's saying that. It's grace from God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes to us through the expense of Christ on the cross. And then peace. Paul brings peace. The idea there is wholeness. Uh, the Hebrew shalom, it comes from a picture of a wall that has every brick in it. If, if there was a, a concrete wall, a fortress around a city, around a refuge, and there was a brick missing from the wall, it was lacking shalom. It was lacking wholeness. It was lacking peace. Uh, it, it was always meant to, anytime in a Hebrew greeting, as shalom was given in Hebrew culture, it was always meant to bring to memory the Garden of Eden, where everything was right, where everything was whole, where sin didn't break our connection with God, where sin didn't break our connection with each other. And the result of that was we weren't broken inside. But Paul says, peace to you from Jesus. Now, it's important to notice that grace comes before peace. You cannot have the peace of God without the grace of God. We have peace with God because of the grace of God. And if you try to fight that order, you, you will not find peace. And you certainly won't find grace trying to work for it. So grace comes first and it brings us into the peace of God. But what's so amazing about Paul saying this in his greeting is he's not just giving a theological point. Paul is saying, notice it there, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's grace and peace to you. These truths come to you from God, but in him, in him bringing that greeting, he's saying, through me. Grace and peace to you from God through me. It's his posture. Now, we just unpacked the theological implications of this for us personally, but let me ask you. Is this people's reputation of you personally? Is this your posture? Are you a vessel? Am I a vessel like Paul is here with this posture of grace and peace. That's what he's saying here. Grace and peace, grace and peace. Sometimes I have to evaluate this in my life because I find other things that start to flow out of me instead of grace and peace. Um, maybe for grace, for example, I, I can maybe tend to be naturally more law-based towards others, right? Like, do more. Try harder. Get, kind of like kick them when they're down. Like, I expected more of you. Which all that leads to is just like a short stint of trying harder again and then falling short again, right? There's no sustaining power in works and law. But Paul is saying, let grace come through me. Uh, Paul elaborates on this in Ephesians. He says, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So you've been saved, not by your works. You've been saved by grace. And then in the next chapter, uh, two chapters later, chapter 4, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth except what is good for necessary edification that it may impart, what? Grace to the hearers. Pa Paul doesn't just say, I am a recipient of grace. Paul says, I am a vessel of grace. Through which that grace that's come to me can also flow through me so that when people come around me, they don't feel burdened by the law. They feel liberated by grace. What a vision for our lives, huh? Like, man, that church, they, it's like they just bring grace everywhere they go. My, my favorite, I, I think, memory and, and an illustration of this is the founder of uh, the Calvary Chapel movement, Chuck Smith. There's a story that I think embodies what it means to be a grace-bringing Christian, a grace-giving Christian, um, especially as a church more than anything else. Um, during the 60s, the Jesus movement is happening, and you have a guy named Chuck Smith who's decades older than the hippies he's, rich, he's reaching. Like, he's not employing any of the modern, like, make church cool and relevant tactics. He's just an old guy who actually is uh, doing the most relevant thing, which is genuinely loving people, right? And so he's teaching the Bible simply. People are coming to Christ, and, and they're packing out these churches with these hippies who are coming off of like days and maybe nights on the streets at the beach surfing, and they're coming into the churches. They're having these church meetings, and they're making a mess in the church, like my kids in my living room. I mean, they're coming in and just trashing everything. And, and it starts to become a problem to the facility. And the elders of the church, they go to Chuck. They go, Chuck, you know, well, hey, Chuck, it's great. You're reaching the hippies. Praise the Lord. God bless you. 
Here's the thing, though. They're dirty, okay? All right. Have you seen the rugs? We've been, we've been, he says we've been, we've been vacuuming them every week. Have you seen the bags? See what's in those things? Like, it's a mess. And Chuck Smith, he turns to the elders and he goes, hmm, he goes, let's rip out the rugs. We've got to keep the rugs clean. No, we don't. Take the rugs out. Let's not say, hey, hippies, we need, to, um, we need to have you kind of morph into what we would expect of your behavior here. Okay. Law, law. He just says, let's just lavish them with love and grace. Let's meet them where they are. Let's not say that their mess is an obstacle to our ministry. Let's welcome the mess as God's welcomed our mess. Let's bring them in and say, let's get, fine, let's get the rugs out of the way then. Rip out the rugs. Well, it's concrete. Who cares? Bring them in. What a great display of what we're called to do imparting grace, grace and peace. Uh, the other thing, of course, is peace. And, uh, man, Scripture is just filled with this call that we have in our lives not to be strife starters but peacemakers. Jesus taught us that blessed are the peacemakers. Um, in, in Hebrews 12, Paul elaborates on this. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one We'll see the Lord. What, what an incredible call on our lives. Uh, the contrast of this in Hebrews of being those that pursue peace. We've been, made, uh, we've been brought to peace with God. We seek to bring peace to others. The contrast is Romans 13 where Paul says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust. Notice this, not in strife and envy. All right, so, so it is... Is your posture most of the time, is it grace and peace, or maybe is it law and strife? This sort of habit that Paul talks about, this tendency to walk as a contentious person. Like you have fun when you're having a quarrel. Like you, you, you naturally are predisposed to a conflict and an issue. And Paul's like, that, that's, that's not how we're called to walk anymore. The calling, again, is to pursue peace. It's not to wait for it, it's to chase after it with that same grace and love of God. So that's Paul's posture. I would ask you this simple question, and you can ask yourself this. Does grace and peace flow from your life? Do you have a horizontal heart through which grace and peace can flow? And if not, here's a follow-up question. Is the grace and peace of God flowing into your life? Is grace and peace flowing from your life? Follow-up question. If not, is the grace and peace of God flowing into your life? And perhaps that's where the stopgap is happening. Perhaps there's a lack of grace and peace that you have towards others because you don't really know what it's like to receive grace from God, and you need to. You haven't fully grasped the peace that God has given you, and you need to. Grace and peace. There's more than a posture. There's also this perspective of love about others. So, so he talks about this greeting of grace and peace, but notice Paul's perspective. That's the next thing we read in there. In verse 7, he talks about how it's right for me to think this of you because of you all. Um, I think when it really comes down to, to, to what love really looks like, I think in its simplest form, it's a posture of grace and peace, but it's also thoughts that are kind, right? Like just simply, like most of my unloving sins are what I think about people. Anybody else, just me. Just me, me, me and Lynn. Thanks, Lynn. All right? I always count on Lynn. Um, and here's the thing. None of us are going to, like, it's not like people call us out on that. Like, hey, the way you're thinking about that person's really sinful. You need to change it, right? So we can hide that. But Paul is giving us a model of a horizontal heart that thinks the way that God would think about someone. He says, it's right for me to think this way concerning you. What is your natural perspective about others? How do you see people? Such a key part of being impacted by God's love. Uh, when, when we go through this incredible section here, it's amazing to see the different things that Paul felt. Did you notice there in verse 3, the first thing we see Paul feeling about this church is he feels this like uh, joyful gratitude for them and their fellowship in the gospel. He says, every time I think about you, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. Remember, Paul's in jail. He's like, and I just, he's like, I'm in jail here, and I just can't stop thinking about you. And every time I think about you, I just get so happy. He's like, ah, oh, chain, you know, oh. Like, that's where he's at. Look at this joy in his heart and the way that he sees 
um, his, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I can't stop thanking God for you with all joy. Notice what for, for your fellowship in the gospel. Here's Paul's perspective towards them. He, he feels great gratitude in his heart, even in the jail cell. The gratitude is like distracting him from where he is because of how thankful he is. Listen, for Christian fellowship. I pray that we could all in some way say, man, I am so thankful for this person's fellowship in the gospel. We all need to be able to say that church is not just a service I attend, but it's a community I'm a part of through Christ. And even when I'm in my deepest, darkest dungeon, I can say, God, this is hard. God, this sucks, but thank you. Thank you for the community you surround me with. God, thank you for the people in my life. Have you felt that way? I've been there before. Where I'm like, yo, this is horrible. And there's times where I just go home to my family. I'm like, well, at least I have you, you know? <laughs> just look at my kids. They're like, Dad, this is weird. Can you please, like, yeah. <laughs> I have you. <laughs> but genuinely, man, the brothers, the sisters in Christ, the fellowship in the gospel, we, we talked about the idea of having someone that you can thank God for. They're in your, a couple years ago, I taught a message on having people in your fellowship. In the same boat of life, you get it? Okay. Move on from that point, should I? Okay. <laughs> but it's the idea of someone that's like, man, they, they, they connect with you, you connect with them, of course, because of your, your fellow laborers for Christ and your fellow, as Paul says, partakers of his grace, but you're also just like fellow strugglers. There's something about the fellowship in that regard that's something to be thankful for. Um, church community starts with all of the positive things we have in common. But when it really goes deeper is when we go, you struggle with that too? Moms, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you yelled at your kid last week? On Instagram, we all are like, oh, we have so much in common, same amount of kids, we're always so happy. It's like, do you know that Becky cursed at her daughter last week? It's like, <laughs> it's like really? She goes, because I, I did the same thing. You know, it's like, whoa. And it's this kind of fellow struggle. The church is not a place for us to boast and show off. It's not, a, as we know, well said in church, it's not a museum for saints. This is a community of fellow strugglers, amen? And listen, that's where community gets rich, when we can rejoice and go, man, I'm going through some hard times, but thank God for the fellowship I have in the gospel. I don't have to walk through this alone. Paul's thankful. He's also confident. This is so cool. This is a big one for me in regards to perspective towards other people, especially people who blow it perpetually. He says, I'm also confident of this thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I've always understood that verse to be like personal. Like I've always took it and been like, thank you, Lord. You know, like got to be confident of this very thing that you are going to, and you should be confident in that. But this isn't something that Paul is, is, is saying, go seek that out from other people. He's saying, go bring that confidence to someone else. Paul, this is Paul's perspective towards another Christian. Imagine if we saw each other as a church the same way. Imagine if when, when we came face to face with our fellow struggles, when we came face to face with our failures, our minds were confident that despite how many setbacks we have, we're like, yeah, I know you keep struggling with that sin. I know that you fall short, but there's just this confidence I have in my heart towards you that God is going to keep doing the work he started. God's going to, because God doesn't, listen, God doesn't leave an incomplete project. God finished what he starts. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. He didn't just start your story. He's going to finish your story. There's something to that. There's something to being a friend that can see someone that way. I tend to see people based on their setbacks. And I'm learning to see people for who God is making them. Can I tell you why? Because God sees me that way. Thank Jesus. God, did you know right now, God doesn't just see you for where you are and who you are and where you're at. God sees you for who he's making you. He has a vision for who you're becoming. And he's not so focused on what happened yesterday. He's focused on tomorrow. He's focused on right now. And Paul goes, I carry that confidence in my spirit into my relationships. Confident of this very thing, that God is going to finish what he started. Uh, Paul is thankful. That's one perspective. He's confident. That's another perspective. He's also like united in a way that I've never seen in my life. He, he says, I have you, verse 7, in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains... And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Like, talk about unity. Unity is such a church buzzword today. we got to be unified. Kumbaya, lock our arms. Yay. Sing. Like, but Paul's like, this is unity. I'm in a trial. 
you're in it with me. What if we saw people that way? I'm in your trial with you. I'm in your chains with you. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. That's community. That's real unity. I'm not just united on paper and theologically. I'm united in heart. He says, I have you in my heart. I, I even have you in my chains. And, and then he just describes this affection. He goes, I affectionately long to be with you in person. Isn't that awesome? That's literally how Paul felt about the church. I don't really know how to teach on this because I don't think anybody has ever, I don't know if any of us have actually ever felt that way. Like you missed a Sunday and you're like, oh. I affectionately long to be at Solace this morning. Now, I hope you do, okay? I feel that way when you're not here, okay? Wait, does he notice? Okay. Um. <laughs> but Paul, he's got this, it's genuine, right? He's like, God is my witness. This isn't like hip hypocritical love where we smile. Like, imagine community in such a way where Paul's like, God can testify to the fact that I really care about you. That's what we want, isn't it? Like, we want to really care. We want to really be cared for. And so look at that amazing perspective. And then lastly, uh, we'll close with this last one. We see Paul offer prayers of love for others. So this is just how Paul models this horizontal heart. These three key characteristics of Paul's horizontal heart. There's a posture of love that maybe tends to bring law and strife, but instead through the gospel is, is being transformed to bring grace and peace as a vessel of grace and peace. The same grace God has shown me, I'm going to show you. The same way that God pursued peace with me when I had hostility with him, I'm going to pursue peace with you. It's a posture. It's a perspective that causes me to see people not just for where they are, but for who God's making them. That's horizontal love. And then there's this final thing that Paul does, which is often kind of chalked away as a religious, spiritual sentiment. But the last way that Paul loves on this church in this opening paragraph by praying for them is, at least through Paul's example, it seems to be the primary way that Paul could love someone. Maybe chalked off in our culture as a sentimental way to just kind of say, hey, I'll pray for you. Oh, that was nice. Like, and usually when someone says that, like, if we're honest, because I don't know how many of us actually do pray when we say that, I think that's kind of become a pleasantry. I'll pray for you. And what we walk away with is, oh, that's so nice of them to say that. But one of the themes in the book of Philippians is this kind of view of prayer that actually believes that when it happens, things happen. Like prayer is a way to access a supply from heaven that God is looking to pour out on us. It's the most loving thing that you can truly do for someone. And Jesus said, here's, by the way, too, your enemies, right? Oh, but they've harmed me. Perfect. Pray for them. And really pray for them. It's the most loving thing we could do for each other is genuinely go before God with a list of, of, of people and a list of needs and concerns. Look at this beautiful prayer. He says, in this I pray. It shows Paul's heart for them. And it's a, like God will grow your heart for people when you're praying for people. He really will. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment. So Paul has these three that's that he prays for them. First he prays that they would abound in love more and more, which I think is, is so cool that he's not like, oh, you're loving, you're good, you did it. You became a Christian, you're loving now. You're, you're, you're walking in the horizontalness, good job, right? He goes, no, I, I pray that your love would continue to abound and grow more and more. So if right now you're like, man, this message was, you know, was good for others and, you know, love. He needs a word on love, you know. <laughs> Maybe you're like, because I'm pretty loving, you know. Paul's like, I'm praying for you that you would abound in love more and more. Um, the idea there is like a, a river that's overflowing beyond the banks into the valleys below. Just overflowing with love. Um, I, I think this is what's needed, by the way, for our church to be effective in this community, in this time. Um, what does our world need? They need like overflowing love. People that really well up with it. So he's like, I pray that you would love uh, in a way that's, that's abounding. Notice what he says. This is really important. That your love would, be, would abound 
in knowledge and all discernment. This is really important. Um, we don't love God ignorantly. We love God in knowledge. In fact, you don't really love someone if you don't take the time to get to know them. Husbands, right? We've got to get to know our wives. Like, if you're married now, six years, you don't know her favorite dish? Let's go. Valentine's Day, step it up. Come on. Right? Part of loving someone is knowing them. So, so, and by the way, too, like, we aren't loving God if we don't know who he is in truth. Theology matters with our love for God. Otherwise, we're just loving a God of our own making. That's not love. So knowledge is important to love. Discernment, he says. Discernment is central to love. An undiscerning love just kind of gives away and gives away and gives away and gives away and gives away. Doesn't ever create any boundaries. Doesn't create any parameters. Discerning love. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever been in a relationship like that where you've got to pray, God, I, I love this person, but give me discernment to love them the way you want me to. Discerning love is so important. He closes with that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you not be distracted, that you be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. And I love this last one, that you be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by, by Christ Jesus to the praise and glory of God. Um, the way that Paul ends this, I'll invite the band to come out, we'll close out here, is Paul's prayer for this church as an expression of his love for them is that they would live fruitful lives. And he's taking a page here in verse, um, what is that, verse 11? He's taking a page right out of John 15, where Jesus is teaching about fruitfulness. Um, and, and Jesus is teaching the same principle that Paul says here in verse 11, that we bear fruits to the glory and praise of God. You know, we don't bear fruit to go, look at my fruit. Hey, oh, I'm a fruitful man, right? We bear fruit for the glory of God. Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. It's for his glory. But there's another key point that he makes here. He says that the fruits that God wants to produce in our lives, listen, even the fruit of love, he says it's by Christ Jesus. There can be such a tendency with a topic like this and a message like this to go, how do I love more this week? I gotta abound. Gotta love harder. Paul says, um, love is fruit by Christ Jesus. How do I love this week? By Christ Jesus. In other words, you and I don't have what it takes to love in the way that God has called us to. But, but notice Jesus in John 15. I love this. We'll leave this up here as we close this song. As the Father loved me, Jesus said, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is where the heart's changed. God's love works inwardly. That same love, imagine this, the same love with which the Father loved the Son has been lavished upon your life. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we shall be called children of God. Jesus says, here's what you gotta do, remain in that. Come back to my love for you and let the fruits of love in your life be by me. As you seek to love me, you seek to love others, ultimately abide in my love. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.